You're listening to the Blue Marine Foundation podcast, sharing our passion for the wonders of the ocean. La mer qu'on voit danser le long Welcome to this edition of the Blue Marine Foundation podcast, presented by me, Amanda Carpenter. Blue's vision is a healthy ocean forever for everyone. As a not-for-profit charity, the foundation is dedicated to creating marine reserves, restoring vital habitats, and establishing models of sustainable fishing. We hope these podcasts will bring you a glimpse of Blue's work above and below the waves, the waters around the UK and in the oceans far away. By sharing Blue's stories and passion, we know you will come to love and treasure the ocean and its wildlife as much as we do. Our podcast today is all about how many fish there are in the sea and how you count them. And if that sounds tricky, it is. But it has become significantly easier and much more reliable thanks to the work of one man, Dr. Rainer Froeser, a senior scientist at the Helmholtz Centre for Ocean Research, GMR, in Kiel, Germany, who has just won the coveted and prestigious Ocean Award 2020 for Science for his work on counting and analysing fish stock data. Rainer. Welcome, congratulations, and thank you for joining the podcast. Okay, greetings from you. The Ocean Awards, now in their fifth year, are a collaboration between Boat International and Blue Marine. And to discuss Reiner's win and the awards themselves, I'm delighted to be joined by Blue Marine's director, Charles Clover. Charles, thanks for joining us and welcome to the pod. Thank you. Good morning. So um, congratulations on your win, Raina. Uh, I think it's really important that we understand a little bit about why these awards are, are so significant. So Charles, could I ask you to just kick off and explain to listeners what Blue Marine and Boat International have been doing over the last few years and why it matters? Well, we decided that there was nobody really pointing out who were the great heroes in the growing uh, attempt to save our oceans from the multiplicity of threats that they face, whether climate change, plastics, or, or overfishing. And um, we set up these ocean awards to seek out among the peers of these um, heroes, the people who they would rate highest for having contributed uh, the most in, in, the, in the past year and inevitably, that, that has stretches back into, into their lifetimes, um, in the case of, of very distinguished people like Reiner. Um, and on this particular occasion, uh, I think that the Science Award is our biggest award this year because I think that the things that Reiner has done are, are very significant, and, and we hope that the, the award will enable more people to know just how significant they are. I should say quickly a, a, something about our judges. Our judges, um, I am the co-chair of the judge, judges with Sasha Bonser from Boat International, but the people we, uh, we prize on our judging panel are, are um, scientists, including Professor Callum Roberts from uh, York University, and uh, businessmen like Sir Charles Dunstan, um, boat builders, people who understand the sea like uh, Peter Lurson, who is um, not only a, a builder of huge yachts, but is, is also a, a, a big uh, marine conservationist himself. That's just a, a little bit of uh, understanding as to the kinds of people that uh, sit on the judging panel. They are, they are very distinguished. 
clearly people who both understand the needs of the seas and the ocean and the fish within it, but also have a, a, a wider view of conservation and to some extent business and commercial interests. And, and that's one of the essential problems with fish, isn't it? Because it's not just... Um, it's not just the need to preserve fish stocks because they're important for ecosystems. It's actually because it's where nature conservation and industry and commerce run straight up against each other. Rana, could you tell us a little bit about some of the work that, that's brought you to this point of winning the award? Because as, as Charles said, this isn't something that's happened overnight. This is the result of a long and, and distinguished career and significant scientific research. I'm going to ask a really stupid question. How on earth do you count fish in the sea? Because they just don't stay still. So where do you start? Well, I, I personally started working on, uh, on the, mer the Merchant Navy in Germany on tankers, actually. And these tankers, uh, before they go to a port, have to clean tanks from the last trip. And they were discharging all the residues of oil and what have you not, and all the chemicals used to clean the tanks overboard, just like that. And so at some point, I really decided that's not what I want to do for the rest of my life. Actually, being a sailor, I've been in lots of ports and I've seen lots of poverty in the world, especially the children. It kind of touched me. And so I thought I, I should really switch my career from being an, an, an nautical officer in the Merchant Navy to um, helping feed people uh, from the sea. And so I gave up my well-paying job. I had, I think, 5,000 Deutschmarks at the time. <laughs> and became a student of biology. And so here I am. Um, so I always had the target of, of, of really helping feed the world from the oceans in a sustainable way, of course. Now, that brought me then to Kiel, where I studied uh, fishery science and biology. And um, I, I there in Kiel met what I thought was one of the, my heroes, which Daniel Pauli, he was kind of uh, coming to the Institute and gave a talk about why do we do all this science? Why are we studying all this? What is it for? And it was kind of switching on the light in the Institute for me because I suddenly saw why we do it and where we should go. And he subsequently brought me to the Philippines where he was working uh, because at the time we thought that the problems of fishing should be solved in developing countries. I will come back to that later because I don't think that anymore. Okay. So I went to the Philippines and we thought it's actually lack of knowledge that hinders the world to properly use the ocean, especially in developing countries. And so we started building this huge database that it became huge in the end. First on the most important commercial fish, then we realized we have to also include the less important commercial fish then we realized we have to include their prey and predators. And so we ended up building an information system on all fishes of the world. And that's the, the system that you call fish base. So that's, that's that's, it's almost like an encyclopedia, isn't it, of fish, fish types. And, and, and how many fish have you got in the, in the you know, different species? We started, with, we, we started with looking at 200 important uh, species. Then it was 2,000. And then we decided to do it all. And today we have 33,000 species of fish in the system. And that are all fish that are known by science on this planet. 33,000 species of That's fish. Exactly right. 
And so we started with one person doing the data entry, and today we have 15 people doing the programming and maintaining and data entry. And they are specialists on the various areas of uh, population dynamics, how fast do fish grow, which is very important in question for management. How do they reproduce? Where do they live? Uh, and what do they feed on? And so on. So that's all in the system. It's all standardized. And it's a kind of amazing system because other than Wikipedia, which only gives you text about something, it actually has standardized all the numbers in units and so on, so that if you ever have a question, you can do a graph of it right away. You can combine all the information that is there in any way you want. That is very powerful and still unique. It's fantastic, Rainer. I mean, it, it, what you've done with... Daniel Pauly with Fishbase. I should say Daniel Pauly is a, a previous winner of uh, the Ocean Awards um, for his amazing work on uh, analyzing the fish stocks of the world and why they were going down, uh, why they still are going down. Uh, with Daniel, uh, you, you produced this amazing thing, Fishbase. I mean, it wouldn't have been possible without the internet. And, and, and I was just thinking um, that... Uh, it is terribly recent that people really understood the plight of fish, and it has come with tools that came from the internet and with global travel, perhaps. But also, uh, I think that there was a tendency for people to think that their problems were unique, and, and Fishbase uh, and other such tools has enabled people at the end of the pier or in their laboratory to realize that actually other people all over the world have the same problem. And that is a very recent understanding, uh, which you have contributed to, if I may say, in a huge way. Charles, what does having a thing like Fishbase mean for in ocean conservation terms and fish management and fish stocks? What, what, why is, why is it important? At, yeah, if you're looking at a particular fish stock, which you know uh, there is a problem about because it's going down, uh, you don't necessarily know what all the bycatch species are doing as well. You know, are they endangered? Are they, do they reproduce slowly? Uh, what, what, what happens uh, when you fish them? And, you know, it's very difficult to work this out. If somebody doesn't have a, a, a globally recognized place to go where everyone agrees that that is probably the best, these are the best references you can find. And, mm -hmm. and that's why this is so important. Um, because the, the commercial and governmental fisheries scientists of the world don't tend to like telling you what their fishery for cod or for tuna is doing to other species. And, and that is the, the value of some of the work that Reiner has been doing that we will come on to, where he's looked at these uh, species that nobody bothers to do fish stock analysis for because they're not commercially important, but they're important to the ecosystem. And they're important um, as, as, as part of our stewardship of nature. If we don't know what's happening to them, um, that is, in a sense, a crime. Uh, we should know what's happening to them, and we should attempt, if we, if we are impacting them, um, as we are in some less considered species in the North Sea, for example, which uh, we must ask Reiner about, you know, we ought to be trying to stop the things that are killing them or rendering them lower than 10% of their former abundance. That's usually trawling, of course. Well, I was going to ask Reiner about um, how how you practically um, implement some of this, because this sounds like a statistical model, but it has a very practical implication, doesn't it, actually out at sea. And, and, and I think there's, can you tell us a little bit about the thorny skate 
because I think this thorny skate was quite important for helping you determine, you know, which, um, you know, population sizes and as an indicator of, um, of, of, of populations under threat. Right. But, but before I do that, we, 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 I will come back to that. Now, let me tell you how I got there. Uh, see, I spent, because I believe that the, the, the solution to overfishing of the, this planet, of the oceans, was in developing countries. I spent 10 years in the Philippines working with Daniel Pauli and our team to spread the information. And we did training courses on stock assessment and what have you not in, in all kind of countries of the world, uh, in the Pacific, in, in South America, in Africa. And however, at the end of the period, I realized that, that nothing changed. After 10 years of doing that, the stocks were in worse condition than before. And, and I realized that actually there, there was no connection between our methods and the guys studying that and what was actually going on in the fisheries. And for, for various reasons in 2000, I went back to Europe and uh, looking here at fisheries when I, when I came back, and I must say I was really shocked to tears. I, really, I mean, close to crying. Because I looked at, well, yes, cod and herring and spread and place and saith and whiting and haddock and stock after stock after stock after stock was dreadfully overfished much more heavily than what I had seen in the tropical countries. So really Europe was doing an, an organized, highly organized war against the fish in their waters, pushing them down to the brink of collapse systematically. And I couldn't believe my eyes. And my colleagues who were in charge of basically doing this better and properly, they were kind of, of sitting on the fence, not saying much. And just, they say, okay, that's a political thing. We have nothing to do with it. We just play with our models and make them more complicated and irreproducible. And so I started then, then bringing, strangely, some of the simple methods that we used in the tropics because of lack of data, back to Europe. And we applied them here to the stocks and we applied them to stocks which had no assessment at all, such as the sharks and the rays and the thorny skate and the lumpfish and all the others. No stock assessment for those, although data were available. That then brought me to really looking at simple fisheries methods, those that we have used in the tropics, and combine them with the knowledge that we have accumulated in fish base and with new powerful statistical methods that have had just become available, combined with substantial power in modern laptop computers. So basically, we take the few data that are available on these less important species and combine them with the life history that we know about them. So how old do they get? How fast do they grow? How do they reproduce? What do they feed upon? And so on. And we combine them with what is called Bayesian statistics, which is a rigorous method of combining numbers, strings of numbers, with uh, expert knowledge, which is often qualitative knowledge. So quantitative numbers with something vague knowledge about. Rigorous combination of that, it's called Bayesian statistics, and it gives you the best estimate of what's going on. Now, 
that couldn't be, could not be done before because uh, these methods were so demanding that, that you couldn't run it in, in, well, a day or so. But with new technology now available, new software available, fantastic software, we can run that in half an hour on, well, new computers that most of you already have in front of you. And that allowed us then to do stock assessments for all these other species, these bycatch species, the less known species, for which only catch data were available, or how much do we catch in one hour of trawling that is called catch per unit of effort data, or we only had the size frequencies. So how many are in a certain length class or age class uh, after one day of catching? This information that is available for all, and we use that and we basically can from that predict how big is the stock relative to unfished size, how fast is it, uh, how hard is it exploited relative to natural mortality, how high is the mortality caused by fishing relative to natural mortality. And that's all you need to know for proper management. Rainer, in the context of some of these bycatch species, these less considered species, I think last year you did uh, the world a service by finding something out about how much they were fished, mm. even in Europe's marine reserves. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, actually, Europe is proud of, of uh, its marine reserve, its network of reserves, uh, where endangered species should find protection. And last year, we did a study uh, of uh, how many reserves are there and how good is the protection. And, and actually, the results were kind of uh, shocking. Uh, we had a, a way to estimate trawling efforts, so how much uh, bottom trawling is going on. You know, these big nets uh, dragged across the floor and basically catching everything in it. And what we found is that within protected areas, there was more trawling than outside, on average. And meaning uh, there was no protection actually going on. And uh, the effect of that is, and that's why we started the study in the first place, that endangered species such as sharks and rays were less abundant within the protected areas than outside, clearly because they were hunted more within the protected areas. So that really, really is, is a big disappointment. And it has to do with a huge bureaucracy in Europe. So it was easy to declare these areas, but then enforce any protection within them. Well, bureaucracy is still sitting on it. After more than 10 or 12 years, nothing has happened. Could I just jump in there? Yes. Um, uh, uh, because your experience has been in, in, in independent thought. Uh, but uh, as you know, and I know, uh, the established fisheries science of Europe is done by an institution called ICES, the International Council for the Exploration of the Sea, and it is a very establishment and, and, and rather opaque institution. And I remember, uh, it, this was 2003, and I was uh, researching my book, The End of the Line, um, which we corresponded about, and I was told by one of the senior scientists at ICES that it wasn't possible to work out the original spawning stock population of a of a fish, because mankind had been fishing so long in Europe that it just wasn't possible. And you're saying that from genetics and a complicated, and a complicated series of different uh, questions, you can work that out. So that, that's amazing. 
how do you do that? Well, the, the, the simplest stock assessment models have just two, two parameters, two numbers that you want to estimate from the available data. One is how big would the stock be without fishing? And second is how fast does it reproduce? What is the maximum rate of, of regrowth if you deplete it? How, how fast can it recover? These are two numbers. And uh, you actually can estimate them with simple models if you know how much we have taken out. And if you have an, an idea of the trend of what is in the water, is it going up, is it going down, or what is it? And, and these very simple methods have been around for a long time, uh, but they have been abandoned by fishery scientists and the, ISIS, uh, and the methods used in, in ISIS that you mentioned they are much more complicated. They have kind of 20, 20 parameters. Many of them are just uh, pulled out of thin air. And in my view, they are much too complicated, irreproducible, and, and often over-parameterized. And they give you more what people think should be there than what really the data do. So is, is it almost like a political way of counting? Is that what you're saying? Is that, am I reading the subtext there? Because if we followed your, your model, we would know exactly how many fish there are, what the size of the stock is, how we could manage that stock more accurately, and therefore what we should and shouldn't be fishing, and what quotas we should and shouldn't be setting. So why would we not use an accurate, reliable model of the kind you've developed? Well... Accurate is, is in, in science always problematic. We have uh, ranges of uncertainty about estimates, <laughs> and the ranges of uncertainty around my methods are wider than what they have. Now you could argue whether that's true or correct, but never mind. Uh, we, we the differences between then the, the results for those numbers that you get from both methods are very similar. And actually, the complicated methods used by ISIS could give you the size of the stocks without fishing, they could give you many more uh, values than they do. And it's not done because of political reasons. Ah, so it's not the model or the data that's at fault. It's the no. political it's, well, it's, will. These are political reasons. ISIS says, as, as uh, Charles just quoted, as they told him, uh, this is impossible, it makes no sense, the ecosystem has changed and so on. Well, but that's not really true. They don't want to show these numbers because then it would be clear that we have reduced stock sizes to only 10 or 15% of what they were without fishing. And now, just, just a simple thing for everybody, what do you think the minimum size of a stock should be relative to, to unfished so that it still can uh, fulfill its role as prey or predator? And I think every school uh, child would agree that uh, well, probably they should not be reduced too much, certainly not, not less than half of the unexploited size. And probably if it's two-thirds, we would be safer that they are still able to fulfill their, their roles. Instead, the scientific community in charge of fisheries has agreed among themselves to ignore that question and to target all stocks, uh, reducing them to roughly one quarter of the unfished size. One quarter. One quarter. And Rainer, uh, this is amazing to me that the public doesn't know more about this because it is, yeah. it, to my very naive ears, it is, it is a crime that we don't know more about this. But 
Yeah. Tell us, I mean, you did look at all the European fish stocks, all 400 yeah. of them. Yeah. And, and what state are they in? Yeah, in, in, we, we actually used our new methods to then do the first assessment of all fish stocks in Europe. And that is about 400 stocks, including the Mediterranean, where everybody said you cannot do stock assessment in the Mediterranean. But we did it with these new methods that use much less data plus additional information we could do that. Now, there is a clear gradient of uh, overfishing from uh, less overfishing in the Barents Sea, so near the pole, polar waters to very high overfishing in the Mediterranean, and North Sea and so on, uh, about half of the stocks were overfished. Okay? And in the Mediterranean, about 90% of all stocks are being overfished. And overfishing, mean, overfishing means you're taking more out of the water than is regrown. And that means the stocks are shrinking. And so the official policy in Europe was that's okay to shrink stocks unless they, they uh, up down to the border where they might collapse. And that border is set at roughly a quarter of unexploited stock size. And that's where this number comes from. Below that, there's really a high danger that the stock might collapse and not not might collapse and disappear. And that has happened actually to, to quite a number of stocks. Just think of sturgeons, gone. They were very abundant. Or the European eel, gone. It was very abundant. There are many others that have just disappeared because they have been pushed below this boundary and they were gone. So what's the implication for, for EU fishing policy now um, because if presumably you know pushing a stock down to, to a quarter of its actual size puts it in immense danger yeah. so so that's something that one would think that the common fisheries policy would have wanted to address and said we can't do this we must allow those stocks to rebuild and we must have a management process is that the case now and what's the implication for future policy making yeah the europe has a common fisheries policy and it is in its third version, third reform version now. The first and the second version of it had the official policy of pushing stocks down to one quarter of unexploded size. Now, that was as bad as you can, can imagine. Uh, and then the NGOs uh, and uh, conservation-minded groups in Europe joined forces and basically pushed for a reform that would do away with that. And that was successful. So the new common fisheries policy says, the one that is in, in, in force since 2014, says stock sizes have to be roughly 40 or 50% of unexploded size and can, shall be larger. So it says should be above the level that can produce maximum catches, which is roughly this 50%. So that's a big step from 25 to 50. And so that the law that we now have is a reasonable law. Okay. Is it working, Rainer? However, however, this law, let me state it again. The new law is a good one. And it says overfishing has to end for good in European waters latest in the year 2020. Now, this is the year we have. And so we can look whether that was achieved or not. Now, fishing, how much is taken out of the water is decided in Europe uh, like this. We have the International Council for the Exploitation of the Seas, that is the ICES, 
they give recommendations of what the maximum sustainable catch for the next year should be. Then the European Commission, the DG Mare, looks at this recommendation and modifies it uh, upwards or downwards according to stakeholder input. And they make a proposal what the catch in the next year should be. And then our the ministers in charge of fisheries, most often the agriculture ministers, meet and in one night session, they decide for 200 stocks what the allowed catches in the next year will be actually be. So that then is the law, set in law catches for the next year. And uh, it so we know these numbers for 2020. And basically, in 46% of the stocks where we have data, the ministers and the commission, they set catches that are above the maximum sustainable catch. So overfishing 46% of the stocks in the year when overfishing was supposed to end for good. And so the sh that's short answer is it's not working. Charles, this has a huge implication at the moment for the COVID situation, doesn't it, in terms of, of, of what's happening to fishing and stocks as well? Yes, uh, Rona, the, the, the fishing fleets cannot go out as they have previously mm -hmm. uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. So what will be the implication for fish stocks? Well, we hear from the media that in, in many fishing ports, half of the vessels don't go out because there is no demand for fresh fish. And I presume the, the storage for frozen fish and so on is full because restaurants are closed and hotels are closed and some of the markets are closed. So clearly demand is down. And if they cannot sell their fish, makes no sense going fishing. That means that in Europe, the two high allowed catches for 2020 actually will not be fished out. And if that is the case, and if roughly half of the catch that is allowed is not fished out in this year, then actually the little virus, Corona, COVID-19, may have achieved what our ministers and DG Mare and the commission failed to achieve, namely, and overfishing in 2020. And the reason, the, the effect of that will be that stocks will grow because less is taken out, more remains in the water, the fish will grow and reproduce. So our fish stocks will grow. And this then offers a unique chance to really end overfishing for good because if next year catches are not raised to what was supposed this year, then because of the increased biomass, those catches may be sustainable. So without pain, if they just do not raise catch, we could have achieved the common fisheries policy law and end overfishing for good in 2020, thanks to Corona. Needless to say, the fishing industry wants to catch another 25% next year in order to uh, make up for not catching it this year. Um, do you have any views as to whether this is consistent with the, the European law? Yeah, unfortunately, there is a, is a history that whenever, for, for unforeseen reason, a stock was doing better than expected, such as now under the COVID crisis, stocks are growing instead of shrinking or just remaining where they are. Whenever that has happened in the past, uh, ministers were quick and the fishing lobby were quick to ask for higher catches 
and they would just do away that option to, to make fisheries healthy and prefer to remain in misery. Don't ask me why. That is so stupid that it boggles the mind. In terms of the economic yeah. uh, gains that they're passing up, what, what, what is the economic potential if you were to manage, if you were to, to bank this bonus and use it as part of a rebuilding plan? What, what is the economic potential of the fish stocks in European seas that we are not seeing? Actually, politicians uh, do, do um, a bad job for fishers, and fishers should realize that. If they say you, you can't catch 25% more next year, basically they're saying you can use 25% of your capital to recover from this crisis. Well, how, how good, how, what good will that do? You shrink your capital, so you, the interest that you will gain in the future will be less. In, in, in fish stocks, we have calculated that. And actually, if you take a credit from nature in fishing by overfishing, taking out more than is regrown, you could look at it as a credit, taking a loan from nature, you have to pay it back. And the interest rate is something like 60%. Okay? That's completely crazy. So the, the, catch, the, the higher catch that you are taking, the overfishing amount, that you're taking this year, you have to pay that back three, four times in the years to come. That is stupid. And actually, I don't know. Sometimes I think uh, DG Mara should be closed, all this fisheries management should be done away with, all the money that they spend off should be done away with. Why am I saying that? Because the allowed catches are often so high that the fishers cannot even fish them out. They stop fishing if the value of the fish that they bring back is less than the cost of fishing. So, so therefore, basically there is no management in managed stocks because the allowed catches are higher than what the fishers would catch without any management. How many million tons of fish would there be if, they, if, if, if the law actually worked, if the law was applied? When we looked at the 400 fish stocks in Europe and, and how they were doing, we also looked, what is the amount of catch that we would get if we were to manage them properly? If we were to let them rebuild to more than half of their unexploded size, if they are larger, they can, they can support higher catches. And actually, amount was 5 million tons more catch could be achieved from, from European seas if we do it properly. And, and, and that is to, to compare to the 8.8 .8 million tons of catch that we were taking. So it is a huge number. And it is, it is much more than actually is all of the aquaculture production in Europe, including Norway. So really, if we were to do fisheries properly, there would be a lot more fish to eat. And the ecosystems would be in much better shape. So that is a win-win solution for everybody. And it's high time that we get there. And Rainer, that would make total sense, not just from an environmental um, ecological management point of view, but also from your 60% rate of interest point of view. I mean, economically, it would make more sense yeah. for our, our fishermen to be catching within a managed proportion and the right number of fish over a longer period of time. So both the fish and the fishermen benefit. Charles, this is a huge opportunity for Blue, isn't it? And I'm sure that there's an enormous campaign to be, to be run for the work of the foundation around putting pressure on, on Europe to make the right decisions about managed fish stocks. 
Rhino, we have to congratulate you again for winning this award and congratulations to Blue as well and the team at Boat International for putting the awards together and for clearly picking um, just the right winner this year um, for the Science Award. Um, and I'm sure that the listeners to this podcast are now much better informed, not just at how many fish are out there, but how you go about understanding how many fish are out there and how important they are. Um, it's been delightful and fascinating to talk to you both. Thank you so much um, for sharing your thoughts and your time. Rainer, lovely to meet you and thank you. Okay, bye. And Charles, fantastic to have the insight from Blue Marine, um, the work you're doing and the important campaigns that you run. So thank you for, for joining this podcast. Congratulations to Rainer. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can follow the work of Blue Marine by visiting the website bluemarinefoundation.com or following them on Twitter at Blue Marine Foundation, sharing their passion for the ocean. This podcast has been brought to you by the team at Planet Pod. Thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and the production team at Blue Marine Foundation. La mer, on va danser. 